back, everyone, to another very special bonus episode of Culture Clash Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Johnson, and this week's episode comes from an earlier interview conducted with myself and two University of Colorado Denver professors from the Ethnic Studies Department, Sarah Hagelin and Katie Mormon, who share their thoughts on House of the Dragon and how it is received in popular culture. So it sounds like you both have that kind of background in ethnic studies, and I'm curious, does that kind of inform your perspective of how you consume media in any way? I mean, I think certainly. Like, once you have um, the lens where you look at culture critically, I don't think you ever turn that off. But to me, it just makes everything more interesting. Um, I think all three of us here are the kind of people who love to sort of dig into things. And even though, you know, sometimes students will joke that, like, Katie and I are like ruining something for them. Like to me, it just makes me love it more to talk it's about more it. It's fun and that way. It. Totally. <laughs> Whenever we watch together, I'm constantly like, Sarah, pause. We need to chat. <laughs> but I think for sure, our academic backgrounds make it so that we have those lenses available to us when and if we want to use them. I'm constantly looking at a piece of pop culture from the lens of, what does this have to do with race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion? Well, I think something like House of the Dragon and also the whole Game of Thrones universe is particularly interesting in this regard because this whole resurgence of interest in the kind of fantasy texts that are set in a sort of vaguely medieval Europe, you know, like, for instance, the way that Westeros pretty clearly stands in for Britain um, in the show's cultural imaginary, I think the popularity of those things in the past 10, 15 years um, does have to do with um, race in the U.S. and more broadly, and these sort of debates that folks are having about land, about who owns the land, what it means to be on stolen land. And I think that all of that is kind of in the background of the way that people are imagining this sort of um, return to an earlier version of Europe, which in certain ways is what Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon is. That cultural perspective that you mentioned that kind of informs how you, you, you yourselves have kind of approached text, but also how like you people more broadly have approached these types of texts. Has that informed how you approached Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon specifically? I was introduced to Game of Thrones by some friends in graduate school, and so we would gather and watch it together. So at that time, of course, watching together, we would talk about it in terms of what we were learning um, in our classes and debate it together. But I also then, I think I started to read the books after um, I was introduced to the show by my friends. Um, and I grew up in a household that is very devoted to fantasy and sci-fi nerdy, nerdiness. <laughs> um, so I took reading those books very seriously to find out what the differences were. Um, but I also read those books with a similar lens. Um, I think just like film and television, literature itself, you also have those, those hats on too. I also read the, the books I think, and it's interesting too, you know, talking about the books in comparison to the shows because, you know, as we all know, George R. R. Martin has not finished the books. He has not finished the book series, but the show has like now surpassed the books. Mm -hmm. As far as like, you know, adaptation wise, do you see that like complicates it in any way? I don't know if I use the word complicates. It just makes it different then. Um... It's funny, we were all talking about like growing up in a nerdy, nerdy household of fantasy <laughs> sci-fi, which I really appreciate. Um, but it's also noteworthy, I think, that a lot of this kind of writing, or the, the more mainstream version of this kind of writing, is written by white men. Um, and so that really 
influences, what are the storylines, what are the complicated backstories, who are the characters that we see, um, and then when Game of Thrones, the production of the television show, starts to surpass the writing of his books, um, that's when I think there's more opportunity that you see where there's different writers, there's different thinkers, different from people, different people from different positionalities who are getting into the writer's room and changing how the story is kind of portrayed. Um, I agree. I think it's a really interesting example of the way that film and television are always such collaborative art forms. So Martin's own involvement, as he was certainly an executive producer on Game of Thrones, and he is also credited as a writer, I believe, um, on quite a few of the episodes. But opening out that universe, I think, does allow for the different kinds of voices that Katie's talking about. Although, of course, famously... Um, Benioff and Weiss, who did the original Game of Thrones, um, have a writing credit on nearly every one of those more than 100 episodes. So um, I think that there's a real opportunity as the universe sort of expands outward to include um, different kinds of voices. Do you see that kind of perspective that George R. R. Martin has, not to say that he necessarily thinks this way, but like from that kind of, you know, again, white male perspective, do you see that kind of inform how House of the Dragon itself as as a series plays out? That's an interesting question because I think a visual medium allows the show to do some things just at the level of representation. So for instance, the way that they've cast black actors as the Valerians. Um, I mean, this is in certain ways, it seems an attempt to respond to the critiques that the, that Game of Thrones series rightly received for, you know, having um, for casting brown actors as the Dothraki and casting basically all white actors um, as the characters who are from Westeros proper, and and I mean that's very much the cultural imagination in which um, George R. R. Martin is working, right? Like he gets this sort of layout from. Tolkien, among others, you know, there's been a lot of really smart work done on the often troubling racial politics of high fantasy. And so certainly Martin inherits that sort of cultural imaginary. And so I think you can see a show like House of the Dragon attempting to push back a little bit at that imaginary. I'm not sure how successfully I think it's doing that. What do you think, Katie? Not well. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it, it... the the creators, the writers, the producers, they have a desire to respond to the cultural zeitgeist, but they're doing it in a very surface level way because they don't think beyond the the obvious representational politics that you referenced. Um, so while I think that, you know, it can be lauded for a step in the right direction, I don't know if we should necessarily go that far if there's not other things that are done at a deeper level in terms of narrative, in terms of character development, in terms of thinking through the um, metaphorical aspects of this fantasy world and what it's representing, and like, are we are we really going to interrogate settler colonialism? Are we really going to interrogate, you know, what are the representations of the dragons in that context? But what they do instead is say, oh, we're going to, we're going to cast actors of color. And that solves all problems, which I don't think is necessarily a good solution or actually helps sometimes. I also agree with what Katie has said about 
um, the ways that House of the Dragon is kind of trying to address this. But for instance, Lord Corliss's brother. Vaemon Valerian. Vaemon Valerian. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so the actor who plays Vaemon Valerian is a really powerful and charismatic on-screen presence. And so they let him in the throne room give this kind of amazing speech where he says out loud the thing that everybody else is afraid to say about Rhaenyra's children being bastards. He calls her a whore. And so on one hand, like the, the show is trying to infuse him as a character and his pride in his house with a real sort of dignity. On the other hand, Matt Smith playing Damon in a like platinum blonde wig is standing behind him, cuts off his head in this way that's supposed to be kind of funny, I think. And so there's this this sort of upsetting way that the, the visual joke of that operates, that like the black man who is speaking truth to power in this scene is like violently silenced by the white male anti-hero. And we're supposed to be a little bit horrified, but the way it happens visually, it, I think it's also supposed to be kind of funny. For sure, yeah. I think that um, in most kinds of Game of Thrones scenes like that, no one ever goes quite that far to say the truth in that way because they are smart enough to know it's not going to end well. Um, and they don't, they don't uh, offer Vaymond this kind of sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's supposed to be noble, but then in the end it just gets him killed. And I think the other thing is too, oh, we're going to cast... Um, black actors in these roles without thinking about you're casting them from a house that is inevitably going to die off. right? What are, what are the visual politics of that in the show is something I don't think they thought through ahead of time, which in a series that's all about thinking through the world is short-sighted. I think that's the prob problematic nature of House of the Dragon and is what I want to segue into with regards to how the show approaches gender because I think it <laughs> approaches the subject in an equally problematic way right because you have these perspectives like we were talking about you have the perspective of martin and a lot of these other writers kind of informing how these characters are i think are treated in universe but i think to some degree as well how they are perceived with regards to spectatorship yeah so i mean certainly the show wants to be framed as coming from the perspective of the female characters. I think we can see that in the fact that the very first episode has that voiceover from adult Rhaenyra, right? Like, that's a move where the show is trying to say this is the way the show is going to be focalized. I also think that's why they chose to open it with um, Rhaenys, Rhaenyra's aunt, being, like, denied what really should have been her claim to the Iron Throne. Um, and then Rhaenyra's father is put on the throne instead. So those two moves, I think, are the show's attempt to set this up as if it's a woman-driven show. Um, I agree with Katie that it doesn't always feel that way, um, although perhaps that will change. I've read some interesting sort of chatter online um, where folks are seeing Alicent as a character as being a sort of um, stand-in or, or a reference to Cersei Lannister. And there's really? certainly, I, I know, that's what I thought at first too, partly because the actor's portrayal of Alicent is so different from Lena Headey's per performance as Cersei. Um, but in certain ways, like these characters who are queens, but are queens through marriage and don't seem to have much political power of their own, um, and also the way that both characters seem driven by trying to protect their children, the oldest of whom is a sociopathic 
like platinum haired son, right? So in that sense, I do see a certain similarity. But I will say that Allison has not yet for me emerged as as powerful and on screen and narrative presence as Cersei Lannister. Like you all both know of my love for Cersei as a character. Um, but also partly through the way the Cersei character was written and also partly through Lena Headey's performance, she was a character who you always wanted to see on screen. You rarely agreed with what she was doing, but you were happy when she was on screen because she was funny and compelling and magnetic and um, scenes that included her sort of snapped with energy. The only character I think so far on House of the Dragon who's doing that is Damon which I think does a little bit to undercut either Rhaenyra's or Alicent's claim to that status. And again, I think this is partly Matt Smith's performance, but it's also partly the way um, the characters seem to be written. I think it's totally the writing. I, I found that both Rhaenyra and Alicent are muddled. I can't make them out. They um, clearly tend us in a direction to think about both of them, but then at really crucial moments, have them do the opposite of what they've set us up to think that they will do. So their character development to me isn't very clear. Um, and then neither of them, I think Alicent having a parallel to Sousky Lannister or Rhaenyra having a parallel to Daenerys Targaryen, mm -hmm. they're like really weak muddled versions of those two kind of characters. Yeah, and I, I, I like how you mentioned this kind of almost grayness as far as how we can view these characters because you know I was under the impression for so long that like the show kind of wanted us to think of them in these in these kind of almost moral binaries um last week's episode you have these two factions break out they have this quarrel at, mm -hmm. at Driftmark and they separate into the, the 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 blacks faction and the greens faction and so I think you're supposed to by that separation you know at some level kind of, you know, choose a side. And especially because I think the show has been focusing on Rhaenyra so long, you kind of side with her a little bit over maybe someone like Alicent, who was kind of like making this play for the throne, even though Viserys had already named Rhaenyra as his heir. And so you're kind of like, well, I'm on Rhaenyra's side because she she's kind of like, you know, owed this opportunity and it's kind of getting seized from her a little bit. But you have this you know, character who's on Rhaenyra's side, Damon, who's arguably the most morally questionable character in the entire <laughs> show, yet we're supposed to now view him as a good guy. And I think that's really interesting, and I think it's what, I think, dis, you know, disassociates these characters from the Game of Thrones characters as well, because it's not exactly one-to-one. -one. Well, and I'm glad, Jake, that you brought up that sort of confrontation that happens in, um last week's episode, because to me this is an example of the kind of muddled screenwriting and character development that Katie's talking about. Because this is like a confrontation in which Alicent tr tries to order, does order, it's just that nobody like completes the order, um, the plucking out of the eye of a small child, right? And so it's this moment where I think nothing in the setup has prepared us for her to make that kind of ask. Whereas every like sort of arguably monstrous thing that Cersei Lannister does makes sense in terms of the way that that show constructed her as a character and what's motivating her. You know, I, I, I'm curious as to what you make of this rivalry, you know, in the past episodes, like how it has come to this point, you know, in this last episode where, you know, Allison is 
thrusting a dagger at her friend and she cuts her in the arm like she stabs her best friend essentially and it's is is the show pitting women against each other is it is it just are these characters at the point because of their own decisions or is it because of something else i this is true of of game of thrones universe in general and how it's portrayed on television but i think that the show falls very easily and quickly into sexist stereotypes Um, particularly around women as mothers and how overpowering that is. That that is going to be the thing that drives them no matter what at base, which is why I think you're so disturbed, Sarah, by this eyeball-plucking proposition (laughs) of Allison's. Because that is not in character. She would... But in that moment, the writers say, oh, she's a mother, and she's so enraged that her her son has lost his eye that she is going to just override her entire personality and ask for this other child's eye. Um, So I do think that, you know, motherhood and this kind of inherent um, sense of what it means to be a mother and that it's so overpowering, it's animalistic, I think that's a sexist trope the show falls back on and it has yet to interrogate. I do think that the show would have been more interesting and the plot would have been more interesting had they explored what would it mean for these two to be allies. I do think the, the narrative force is driven around these two having a conflict and not being sure how to resolve it. I, I see several avenues through which they could have continued in alliance but the show, show doesn't even contemplate that exactly they would be smart to continue yeah. in alliance the sort of political universe that the show sets up um what characters should do is clear you know near the end of this last episode the show like teases us with the possibility that they could have a real relationship again it's done that a couple of times right and certainly um in the first several episodes um, before the major rift between Allison and Rhaenyra, their relationship was the most interesting thing um, about the show to me. And so I am drawn in by those moments where it seems as if these women are going to be able to see that they have common cause with one another, um, that they've cared about one another. Um, Katie has heard me make this argument before, but um, the original Game of Thrones was criticized rightly for falling into like one sort of sexist trope that popular media falls into which is you know using sexual violence against women as a plot point as like character development for male characters using you know what got called sex position where you know characters um often sex worker characters are like having sex in the background for no apparent reason while we get um exposition about the show so house of the dragon is not doing that right but what it's doing instead is falling into a trope that I think is possibly even more pernicious, which is the sort of widespread pop culture assumption that women can't really trust each other. Now, I like how you both mentioned that this is established not only through how male characters kind of put this on them, but also that perspective of just how they're written. You have these, you know, writers who subject these characters to these events in the first place. It's interesting, right, because I feel like, I mean, the person, the the woman character who I actually think is most interesting at this point is Rainey's. And she is a character who seems to be able to, like, make the smart move. The way we saw her um, in this, just, I think, just right, this right. past episode, like, take Rhaenyra up on her offer publicly. Right. Um, she yeah. does in the crown room what yes. 
her brother-in-law was unable to do, which yes. is keep bite her tongue um, yes. to stay alive and get what she needs for her family. Exactly. I But I think the show is doing to her what that actually happens in the world of the show. Hmm. Could have this first female ruler, depending on what the Great Council says, but no, we're going to shove her aside and not really pay that much attention to her. I think this is what the show is doing with her, which is a real loss, because I think there's opportunities there for her as a character. So if we accept this as kind of like the normal, you know, thing, what does that normalization do? Does it impact audiences in any way? Does it normalize these types of things for us? Well, I, I think that those sequences, especially the way that they're pretty clearly focalized um, through the suffering of the female character, um, I, I think they're trying to make us think differently about what it means to sell women into marriage, what it means to like have women in these societies where their worth comes from the air that they're able to produce for the family. Um, but in the way that we've been discussing for the past hour, I think the show kind of fumbles the ball in terms of the payoff of that. I'm reminded of uh, Queen Emma's uh, birth in the first episode where mm -hmm. because of the actions of Viserys, she has to get this really archaic C-section that um, ultimately kills her and the baby. And I, 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 I gather that there's this idea, and I, I'm you know, absolutely in agreement that like there's this, you know, half critique of like, this is wrong that Viserys is able to do this, but I'm wondering, do you think that that critique is then further complicated as we have discussed by that kind of perspective that it's, you know, not only because it's like, you know, normalized within the universe, but also like from that perspective of someone like, you know, Martin or, uh, or these showrunners. Is that complicated in any way? I don't think so. I think that, um, that the choice to do that scene and then the choice to do a similar scene later in the show with Damon's wife, um, Lena. Lena, and then how those two scenes, uh, clearly they were setting up for those two scenes to juxtapose one another. And, but in the end, those scenes become about the choices the men in those scenes are making. It is not about the two women and the choices they make, even though in the second instance, um, uh, Damon's wife, Lena, you know, chooses to die by fire. Um, and I heard several times from the show's creators, oh, well, we tested this episode on lots of women for the, the opening episode where Emma's um, uh, C-section is shown. And that, to me, that, that justification shows a, a really problematic understanding of how to deal with these issues. I, I'm curious, and I, I want to tease this out a little bit more. Um, in what ways does it excuse that type of behavior then? I think that um, because of how we think and talk about um, people's bodies in our society, women's bodies and people's bodies who can um, bear children in general. Um, I think that both Viserys and Damon are given outs functionally, whether or not that was the intention of the show. Um, I think in the case of Viserys, it's, oh, he really had a tough decision to make and there was this world in which he needs a male heir and then we kind of forget about it because he makes so many stupid decisions going forward. <laughs> um, and then with Damon, it's like you spend all this time building up, oh, God, he's a horrible, horrible person and there's just these, like, moments of, like, oh, maybe you should like him. Um, that I, I think it would be hard for the audience to... Um, 
not find a way to excuse their behavior. <laughs> but I think that the show also, in this regard, has a masculinity problem. Because even though Patty Constantine is a compelling performer, um, the juxtaposition of those scenes makes Viserys look weak and Damon look strong. And the show does end up admiring strength in whatever kind of gendered body it presents itself. But I think that there's there ends up being a problem with the way that there is viewer pleasure in Damon's decisiveness, in his decisive acts of violence, and I think the show is set up to encourage our frustration with Viserys's lack of decisiveness. And, and even in the end with the way that he seems to embody and inhabit a sort of less conventional form of masculinity. I think that Damon is an interesting character in relationship to gender and masculinity and femininity because as you pointed out Sarah like it has a masculinity problem it's it's reaffirming like a normative idea of what is appropriately and good in terms of masculinity in Damon making strong decisions making them quickly being decisive all of that kind of stuff um killing a queer quoted character his first wife I have to throw that in there yes um, <laughs> Um, but he's also painted as a feminist in the show, which I think is an interesting juxtaposition. The show does not know how to deal with toxic masculinity and feminism. And I think it's an example of this like post-feminist um, kind of context that these shows are created in, but also then this like mainstreaming and um, uh, uh, gutting of a true sense of what feminism is and how it's represented on screen. Exactly. When Rhaenyra and Laenor are getting married, right, in this sort of, like, arranged political marriage, um, he's the one who shows up, Damon, and says to her in High Valerian, like, is this what you want? The show gives him, like, the show lets him give voice to the contemporary feminist viewers' uneasiness with this. And I share Katie's interest in and discomfort with the fact that he's the character who gets to say that line. So the Game of Thrones universe has a deep skepticism about power at the same time that like it gets its it gets its drive as entertainment from the Game of Thrones, right? From our sort of cultural interest in who's going to have power and what it costs to keep power. If you would like to hear more from Sarah and Katie, be sure to check out our full episode on House of the Dragon, which will be linked along with this one, and subscribe to the Culture Clash podcast so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening.